Today, October 22, is a very significant day in the history of our beginnings. Welcome to the Avenue History Podcast, Season 2, Episode 16, A Star is Born, A Star is Fallen. Now, last time we talked about Louis Sheaf and James K. Humphrey, their struggles with church leaders that caused them to leave the Seventh-day Adventist Church. Humphrey, you may recall, tried to set up a utopia, but the ultimate problem between the two men and their church was the lack of warm personal relationships that they had or didn't have with church leaders. So, on that cheerful note, let's talk about more people who left the church. First, I want to back up because a curious question was floating around after the death of Ellen White. And that question was basically, what do we do with her unpublished writings? We've talked about this a little bit, but I want to revisit it. You see, Willie White found himself at odds with the trustees of the Ellen White estate, especially the general conference president who chaired the trustees, Arthur G. Daniels. Now, Willie wanted to publish his mother's writings, and Daniels thought it better just to leave them be. Now, some Adventists like Claude Holmes thought he knew why, and that was because Daniels had something to hide. Holmes couldn't shake the thought that, that Daniels was doing this because Ellen White had written something about Daniels that Daniels didn't want to get out. And this is why Holmes felt it, he needed to work his way into the General Conference vault and copy as many of her writings as he possibly could. Now, the fact that Holmes was fired for doing this only seemed to confirm in his mind that Daniels was a power-hungry dictator trying to hide something. Well, of course, the truth was less sinister. Daniels was coming at this as a veteran administrator who had the battle scars to prove what happens when certain people get a hold of Ellen White's writings. They became a weapon. And the fact that Holmes had wormed his way into the vault and then released unrestricted warfare upon Daniels and his presidency would only prove Daniels' point, right? That you shouldn't let people like this get certain writings of Ellen White. Now, if Ellen White's unpublished writings were released without careful attention to context and explanation, then people like Holmes could do serious damage with them. Ellen White was no longer around, after all, to explain what she meant or whether she still felt the same way about something. Now, Willie thought he was charting a middle ground between Holmes and Daniels. Willie didn't want to just hand out his mother's writings and say, here, have fun with it. He was aware of the danger. He was aware of how people would use them. He also thought it was a waste, however, of his mother's gift to just do nothing. I mean, who better than her son, who had worked closely with her for almost all of his life, to carefully publish writings to meet the needs of the moment. In the autumn of 1924, Willie put the question to the General Conference Committee. He wanted resolution on this point. And after reminding them how an encouraging letter from Ellen White, previously unpublished, had been released and had blessed thousands of people, Willie asked, quote, was it right or wrong to let the people have it, end quote. Well, Willie then pursued a policy that has endured at the White Estate until relatively recently. The trustees of the White Estate should release Ellen White's unpublished writings 
quote, this is Willie speaking here, only in case of emergency or real need, end quote. Of course, this policy made, well, not every, didn't make everybody feel happy, okay? Some of Ellen White's critics no doubt assumed that the White estate was hiding something embarrassing or heretical things that Ellen White must have written, some secret past that she was trying to conceal, and some of Ellen White's bravest disciples, like Claude Holmes, felt that the White estate was hiding some important truths that she had written, right? So the, the skeptics, the critics thought they were hiding some embarrassing or heretical things, and some of Ellen White's bravest champions thought they were hiding important truths. So really, Willie's middle course here wasn't going to help him win a popularity contest. And through the past century since her death, as long as this policy has generally been in place, little has really changed. I mean, there's been rumors throughout the decades of a little black book, which, if discovered, would destroy everyone's confidence in her. This is what opponents of Seventh-day Adventism have been hinting at. The June 1976 issue of Ministry contained an interview with a white estate trustee. One of the questions that was asked of this trustee was, quote, the White Estate has been charged with suppression of some documents, end quote. Okay, I guess that wasn't a question. But there was a question that followed it, okay? Right, they're aware of the things that were being said. There were rumors of what might be contained in the mysterious Z file at the White Estate. In 2012, someone hired hackers to break into the White Estate and download some 8,000 previously unpublished documents, which they then tried to sell online. Why? Well, the mastermind behind it, not exactly a genius, as he left his information all over PayPal when he was trying to sell it. Anyways, he called it a public service, right? These writings, they need to get out there. Well, it was awkward to be a trustee of the White Estate. The trustees were clear that they aren't Ellen White's official interpreters, yet they found themselves answering thousands of questions about her. Explaining Ellen White had always been Willie White's job, primarily, especially in the later years of Ellen White's life. Writing Willie was something many church leaders preferred over troubling the aged prophet, because after all, she could always explain herself if she needed to write. If, if Willie's explanation wasn't clear enough or wasn't quite right, they could always count on Ellen White to correct him. When it came to the heated debate over the daily with both sides wrestling over what Ellen White meant, Ellen White could effectively tamp down on it by telling both sides just to leave it alone. I mean, at least for a little while. But who can do that now? Who speaks for Ellen White? The White Estate? Not exactly. And as I said, they weren't Ellen White's interpreters. They simply managed her writings. So what do you do when a high-profile Avenist leader or two decides to leave the church over problems they have with things that Ellen White wrote. Who speaks for Ellen White? Who explains what she meant in some kind of authoritative way? Now, we're going to be talking about a couple of these Adventist leaders who decide to leave, whose star is about to fall. But first, I want to talk about a star that is rising. You see, the first three decades of the 20th century witnessed the fall of many Adventist stars. Ballinger, who we didn't talk about very much, uh, then Kellogg and Jones and Wagner and Sheaf and Humphrey, all important people, gifted people with great influence. Adventism has a habit, if you haven't noticed yet, of firing up young people, all people really, and giving them responsibility, training them uh, in schools and in hospitals, and then watching them leave over and over and over again. The Seventh-day Adventist Church is a high turnover organization, 
And this creates an atmosphere of suspicion at times. I mean, the DM Canwright who is defending Ellen White in a debate today might attack her tomorrow. But I guess if there's an upside, it's that there's always plenty of opportunity for loyal, articulate, gifted preachers to, shall we say, advance. One such loyal, articulate, gifted preacher was the Australian Roy Allen Anderson. You may have read some of his books. If you're an Adventist, they have uh, circulated quite widely in decades past. Now, Anderson, like the Hare family, was part of a large Adventist clan down under. His father, A.W. Anderson, had been among the first converts of Ellen White when she arrived in Australia in the 1890s. It didn't take long for the newly married son to show his quality. In 1921, he helped untangle a strange affair involving a married couple and a sanitarium nurse for his conference president, who was confused by the whole affair. Most importantly, however, Roy was an evangelist, and his big break began when one of Anderson's letters was shown to Leroy Froome, who was working with Daniels, of course, to build up the newly minted ministerial association. Now, Froome was impressed by Anderson's conviction on the need for Christ-focused preaching in the Seventh-day Adventist Church. It is not always easy, Froome wrote, to break with methods of the past, and some have an inherent fear that any different presentation is a departure from the good old message, end quote. Froome's line was as true of Adventism in 1929 as it would have been had it been written in 1889, just after the 1888 General Conference session. Apparently, each generation of Adventist preachers were having to rediscover the importance of centering their Adventism on Christ. Now, two things were clear. First, that Roy Allen Anderson had discovered the importance of Jesus about this time. Second, that Anderson was a man after Froome and Daniels' own heart. In other words, Roy Allen Anderson was on the radar. Now, months later, Anderson got an offer from the General Conference. I mean, how would you like to move to England? A few weeks after that, the official job offer arrived from the president of the Northern European Division, L.H. Christian. Christian was so excited to have Anderson in England, he could barely contain himself. He wrote, quote, We are very desirous that you should accept this invitation, end quote, and urged Anderson to accept the call, right? If you ask me... You should. It is, he added, one of those opportunities that come to us men but once in a lifetime, end quote. Once again, Christian drove the point home, quote, I am certain also that there is a far greater future for you as an evangelist over here than there is anywhere in Australia, end quote. L.H. Christian, a division president, was pitching a job to an obscure pastor in the backwater of the British Empire like the best used car salesman. It would be like Steve Jobs calling an Apple Store employee in Nashville and asking if they wanted to move to headquarters in California. But why should this once-in-a-lifetime call be offered to a relatively unknown preacher in Australia? Well, Christian explained He explained that, quote, I have heard of you through the years, and especially the last year or two, end quote. Now, Prescott had been the one to show Anderson's letter to Froome, and that's what got that ball going. And it seems that Froome was the one to brief his boss, Daniels, on the potential of this young star. And Daniels, in turn, had told Christian about the good work Anderson was doing down there in Australia. 
And honestly, that's all it took. A letter and a few conversations with the right people, and a relatively unknown preacher gets an invitation to England. That's networking, folks. There's some evidence that Anderson really desired to go to America, but no call came. Europe wasn't a bad place to land, however. The Central European Division president, Ludwig Conradi, admitted that a lot of Adventist missionaries wished to go to Europe. C.H. Watson, Anderson's union president down there in Australia, saw him off and warned him that England would be hard. Meanwhile, L.H. Christian's literary portrait of ministry in England was like a colorful Norman Rockwell, when something like a Jules Breton's Song of the Lark would have been a little bit more accurate. You see, growth in England was grinding to a halt. The General Conference had to send money just to keep things going. The pastor of the Battersea Church and 30 of his members just up and left the denomination. Margaret Rowan, a woman who claimed Jesus would come in 1925 and who wanted to be a successor to Ellen White's prophetic ministry uh, before being wanted for attempted murder, that is, had some fans in England and elsewhere in Europe who confused and distressed members there for a couple of years. Lionel Barris, England's great evangelist of the era, burned out and left the denomination. Pastors found their salaries cut. It had been like this since the beginning of the work there in England. Adventism just didn't, I don't know, take in England as it did elsewhere. Big-name evangelists like Prescott and Haskell and Wagner and Washburn would establish churches and move on to the next city, only for many of the members to leave in their absence. After the first 20 years, there were no ministers stationed in London. In 1932, W.H. Meredith, British Union president, delivered a rather somber assessment of the work in England. Quote, Most people agree that we are in a state of turmoil from which there seems to be little hope of rescue. End quote. In other words, the British Union needed a lot of help. The 1930s are called another golden age for evangelism in England, however, and that's in part due to Roy Allen Anderson's tireless work there. He planted a church of 120 in Wood Green, having brought all but 20 into the faith himself. The next year, he baptized another 85 people in just a few months in London. He sent postcards from Denmark and Germany and, curiously, from Gretna Green, Scotland. I'm sure I'm mispronouncing that. Sorry, Scottish people. The, the, the front of that postcard featured the six stages of a runaway wedding, which was a nod to the city's history as a place just across the border from England where young English couples went to elope because of England's strict marriage requirements in the 1700s. So, so things were going great for Anderson, except they weren't. In 1935, Roy Anderson wrote to C.H. Watson, again, his old union president from Australia, who was now general conference president after Spicer. Anyway, so Roy wrote him and confessed that his last two years there in England had been the hardest years of his life. Recalling how Watson had warned him that day when he was about to leave Australia that England was a hard field to work, Anderson admitted that six years later, quote, we have come to realize the truth of your words, end quote. Then he opened up to his old mentor, quote, is it really the Lord's will for us to continue year after year fighting what almost seems an impossible battle, end quote? Anderson in particular was frustrated with the leaders in England. He was never asked for his opinion, and younger, less experienced leaders were giving him assignments. Quote, It is difficult to have to watch one's life work being hacked to pieces 
by those who through inexperience know little about it, end quote. Anderson chalked it up to the fact that he wasn't English and it was hard for the English to respect somebody who wasn't English to just come in as a leader and show them how to do things. Anderson clearly needed a lot of help. And reaching out to L.H. Christian, the man who had so exuberantly sold him on coming to England to work, well, Anderson discovered that his division president didn't quite have enough time for him anymore and waited a year to hear an answer to his letter. Well, that's networking, folks. Now, I don't want you to worry about our friend Roy. I have a feeling his star is going to find its place in the sky. But instead, we're going to travel back to Australia. Because just as Roy is settling in in England, one of his colleagues back home is leaving. And that's W.W. Fletcher. Fletcher had been another rising star as a division leader who unexpectedly stumbled when he was asked to serve as a Bible teacher for three years at what is now Avondale University College. And in studying for those classes, Fletcher realized that Adventists may be wrong about their sanctuary doctrine and about the inspiration of Ellen White. Fletcher sent a letter to Spicy Spicer, who was then General Conference President, laying it all out for him. Why, Fletcher was asking, do we see it as a virtue to believe what the pioneers like Ellen White believe? Shouldn't we hold them accountable to the scriptures as well? His beef with Ellen White was with her teaching on the shut door, which we talked about a long time ago in this podcast. And if she could be wrong about that, Fletcher reasons, then we need to rethink her role as an authority in the church as a whole. Of course, Fletcher didn't see himself as an enemy of Adventism like those who have come before and after him. He thought the sanctuary doctrine was like an inflamed appendix that could be surgically removed from Adventism and that the patient would be happier and healthier as a result. Well, the General Conference president doesn't deal with such things, so he told the Australasian Union to deal with Fletcher, and so they dutifully convened a committee, Adventism's most deadly weapon, in the spring of 1930. Of course, the committee found that Fletcher was wrong, surprise, and responded to his points, and of course, Fletcher later published his points, their responses to his points, and his responses to their responses, and of course, the church notably the Australian Signs of the Times, would later respond to his responses to their responses, and I think you're going to get how this works. Fletcher was summoned to the GC for a meeting, finally, and that was that. As one division leader was falling in the Pacific, another division leader was falling in Europe. Ludwig Conradi. Conradi had gotten up in front of the General Conference session in 1926 and said that he had been in Europe for 40 years and people ask him, how much longer are you going to stay, man? Conradi, like James K. Humphrey at the prior GC session, signaled his loyalty. Quote, my wife and I made up our minds. We would stay until the Lord comes or until we die. We settled that question long ago. End quote. What other figure in Adventism could rival Conradi's wealth of experience by the 1920s? Only the younger Daniels could possibly challenge him there. But if Daniels was the consummate administrator, then Conradi was the missionary par excellence. He crossed the Atlantic some 70 times. He went to Africa seven times, got malaria, almost died. In Russia, he was arrested and barely avoided being exiled to Siberia. Daniels may have been president, but Conradi was Adventism's senior general, grizzled and battle-scarred. He had a story for everything. 
An unexpected and unwanted child, his mother kept his existence a secret from her family. She was almost 40 when he was born, and he never met his father. Fleeing Germany, he went to America to find a better life as an immigrant farmhand in Iowa at a time when Iowa was a Seventh-day Adventist fortress. Adventism saved Conradi, gave him direction, trained him. The church sent him to college in Battle Creek, where he finished his program three times faster than was usual. The Whites took him under their wing, just as they had done with a young John Harvey Kellogg. In 1886, he was on a ship for Europe again, and new English wife in tow. Daniel Hines wrote that, quote, Conradi was sent to Europe to achieve that breakthrough in Adventist mission work that M.B. Tchaikovsky and J.N. Andrews had not accomplished, end quote. Back to the 1926 General Conference session, where Conradi boasted, quote, in 1909, I received a cable from the General Conference. Brother Conradi, would you go to India or South America? Brother Daniels was sick at the time. It didn't take my wife five minutes to decide. What is the difference to me, whether North or South Pole or Central Africa or some other country? I go. I am 70 years old, but I go, end quote. He then noted how he had to sleep on a hard seat on a train as he traveled from place to place, but counted it a blessing because when he finally got thrown into prison later on in life, he was already used to sleeping on hard surfaces. So he recommended to young people who may be listening to intentionally endure hardship so that they could be used to hardship when they would eventually, inevitably, be thrown in the prison. Finally, he reminded the delegates of the charge he gave every missionary to Africa. Quote, are you ready when you get down there to die? End quote. When you read the, the words of Paul in 2 Corinthians 11, you can almost hear Conradi speaking. Whatever anyone else dares boast about, I also dare to boast about. Are they servants of Christ? I am more. I have worked much harder, been in prison more frequently, been flogged more severely, and been exposed to death again and again. Conradi was in many ways an Adventist Paul. You name it, he's been through it. Ellen White once gave Conradi the kind of compliment she had reserved for her husband James when she said that Conradi did the work of several men. The compliment was apt as Conradi was more like James White than anyone else in the early 20th century. Both men were gifted leaders, stubborn, occasionally imperious, single-minded, generous, workaholics. Conradi needed to be this way. He carried an entire continent on his back. Like James, people accused Conradi of being a dictator. Unlike James, however, they accused him of doubting the prophetic gift of Ellen White. In 1922, the Brethren appointed Conradi as a field secretary of the General Conference, a sort of promotion but with less power. Now he was responsible for training pastors in Europe. He characteristically threw himself into this work. He told pastors that when they preach the same old sermon so much, he doesn't blame their congregations for falling asleep. He was tough, but he was respected. By 1931, Conradi was in the humiliating position of defending himself before the leaders of the Central European Division, the division he used to lead for decades over an article he published and also a book manuscript on Revelation, which seemed to ignore many of the traditional Avenist interpretations in which no denominational press would dare publish. Like Fletcher, Conradi had grown disillusioned by the mistakes of the earliest Adventist pioneers. So it's little wonder that Fletcher and Conradi began communicating. There were a lot of points of disagreement with the church, but Conradi's two big concerns, like Fletcher's, settled around the prophetic role of Ellen White in the Adventist sanctuary doctrine. Conradi was in his mid-70s and yet a formidable force. 
He knew very well how this process worked. He himself had been on the other side of the table, arguing the truth of Adventism with Ballinger. Conradi warned the division that Adventism had come to rest unthinkingly on Ellen White and the other pioneers over the Bible. Quote, you have all you need of preachers, institutions, publishing houses, but I tell you one thing, the moment we drift away from a knowledge of this book that God gives us, then there is a possibility that the power will disappear, end quote. Someone threw the great rhetorical question that Adventist leaders had always thrown at people on their way out. Look at everyone who leaves the church. They never amount to anything outside of this movement. Conradi simply responded, like his hero Luther, that he has to follow where he feels God is leading. The Central European Division ultimately sent his case to the General Conference Committee. And the committee repeatedly told Conradi how much they loved and respected him, and Conradi said that he believed it. He accepted their love. Conradi didn't want to leave the church. He agreed to step down from all his leadership roles, but desired to keep preaching what he believed was the truth. Appeals to Luther were all fine and good, but as President Watson explained, it was not so simple for church leaders. The leaders of the church must present a united front in the doctrine that they teach, or else it will sow confusion among the members. We do not want to bind your conscience, Watson told Conradi, but our people must be protected against the disappointment that would come to them if you would continue to agitate these points. Conradi understood and promised that he wouldn't go around promoting his views at will. But if a church invited him to come speak and asked Conradi what he believed about a particular subject, Conradi would have to tell them the truth. Some of you may get the point. You've heard enough. You get where this is going. But in case you guys want more, I'll release a special episode that goes into more of the details of Conradi's specific theological objections, and this will be for our patrons on Patreon. So go ahead and support this podcast on Patreon if you want access to something like that. Anyways, the breakup with Conradi seemed to go well. The GC would continue paying his salary, and he agreed to be as quiet as possible. But former Avenus had picked up on Conradi's doubts and trumpeted them as loudly as possible. This embarrassed the church and put Conradi in a vice. Conradi didn't help himself, of course, as some of his private letters carrying his doubts ended up being published. And eventually the church withdrew Conradi's ministerial credentials. And then Conradi felt free to let people know what he really felt. And it wasn't long before he joined the Seventh-day Baptists the most veteran general in the Seventh-day Adventist church at that time, had defected. Such was the way of the Seventh-day Adventist church. Stars rise and stars fall. We should remember that it's really easy to look at those high-profile people who leave and forget about the many, many more who stay, yet that shouldn't disguise the serious systemic problem Adventism has always had. It gains and loses members at incredibly high rates. And it's not just about losing members, it's about losing incredibly talented and experienced members. Sure, Adventism has survived, even thrived, despite those losses. That it's so easy to brush off the Kellogg's and Conradi's and Des Ford's is a testimony to the potency of the Adventist movement. And yet, if the Adventist church were a multinational corporation— losing their vice presidents and high-level management left and right to their competitors, business analysts would start raising red flags. Journalists would start to investigate what's wrong with the company's culture that so many high-profile people abandon ship. Maybe you can chalk a few up to differences of personality, but all of them? And when so many of these people who leave start citing the same issues over and over again, you do have to wonder if there's something in the system or the culture of the organization 
It's only when you take these defectors together that you start seeing patterns, not just over years, over decades, over centuries. This doesn't mean that all of these defectors are right in their critiques of the church. That's not a question we're going to answer uh, on a history podcast. But if you deal with the source materials for like 30 minutes, you can see points where Conradi and Fletcher got some things wrong, particularly about Ellen White. They just couldn't understand how a prophet could revise her own writings if they were inspired by God. But there are several very convincing explanations, some of which Ellen White herself offered, and none of which they seemed to consider. Nevertheless, one is left with a nagging suspicion that something needs to be fixed in Adventism, something that has been broken since the very beginning. Church leaders today talk about closing the back door, so it's just not so easy just to walk out. And that's an apt metaphor. In the house that is the Seventh-day Adventist Church, both the front doors and the back doors have always been wide open. It's easy to come in, it's easy to go out. But to take the metaphor further, maybe the problem isn't the door. After all, if we just lock the back door, that would be kind of cultish. The problem is that too many talented, experienced Adventists are getting tired of being in the house itself. They're coming to the party and leaving long before it's over. Why? Is there not enough non-alcoholic beer and caffeine-free Coke? Are the veggie corn dogs that are being served on platters not to everyone's liking? Is it the karaoke hymns in the living room? What is it? Why do people leave? Perhaps that's a conversation worth having. Hey, it's me again. If this episode didn't quench your desire for more Adventist History content, then go subscribe to Adventist History Extra. It's a private podcast that I do for those who support the Adventist History Project. You can get access to Adventist History Extra on the website, which is AdventistHistoryProject.org, or by becoming a patron at Patreon.com. Now, there's more variety at Adventist History Extra, in case you were wondering. I do some interviews. Sometimes I do bonus episodes. You know, I, we had a good episode here in the Adventist History Podcast, and I want to talk some more about it. Other times, I go behind the scenes at conferences I attend, like the Women in Seventh-day Adventist History Conference. What's more, just as a second announcement for you, Michael Campbell and I are leading a bus tour in October 2024. So... If you want to go drive around New England a bit, see the, see the sights and have some fun, well, you can sign up for our bus tour newsletter, once again, at AdventistHistoryProject.org. And we're going to keep you up to date there about what you need to know to go and sign up for that and all of that. So just to be very, 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 very clear, we don't have a sign up for the bus tour itself, but it's a sign up for the newsletter so you can stay informed about the bus tour so I don't have to make announcements every single time and interrupt these episodes and all of that. That's where those announcements are going to be. So if you're interested, head on over to the website. You can sign up for the bus tour newsletter over there. Okay, I think that about does it. Thanks again for listening. <laughs>